Hey guys, I'm Nick. And I'm Eugene. Welcome to Papercut. This week, we have Cry, the Beloved Country by Alan Patton, 1948. Eugene, take it away. So, this story is basically To Kill a Mockingbird, but in South Africa. Okay, okay, so you got the racism part already? Yeah, yeah. So, in a nutshell, it's uh, this priest, Stephen Kamado, he wants to go to uh, Johannesburg to find his son. So he goes to Johannesburg, and in a way, he he talks about his experience. So, the book talks about his experience in it. Um, he meets his sister, who is also there. Um, to start a new life, um, she became a druggie oh. and prostitute, oh. and he finds his son, and his son has been accused of murder of a local farm owner, which ho- also happens to be the farm owner of the native village that Stevens from. So, so he's white then. Yeah, he's white. Okay. So that's where the racism part comes in, right? So you have the white people being scared of the black people, as was the case before then. I think it might still be now because like, I hear stories of people locking their doors and like owning guns in South African neighborhoods to keep out like the, the, the thieves. So I'm not sure if there's like kind of like the same thing or not. But anyway, you have that. So he goes and finds his son being accused of murder. And yeah, the whole story is about how he tries to redeem his son. And so he talks to his son and like the different people in Johannesburg. It's actually more about Stephen than about his son. So okay. his son was like a major plot line, but the main plot line was how Stephen discovers the different aspects of life, different types of people that maybe those maybe maybe people who would appear to be helpful were not actually that helpful, and people who did not appear to be helpful were actually like quite helpful. It's like one of those kind of stories, you know, okay. the, the the finding yourself slash finding out about new world. That okay. kind of story. So yeah. Okay. So, I guess, well, you're talking about apartheid Africa. So yes. like racism, I feel would be, I, I'm I'm just assuming it would be like probably a really big part in it. Would you say it was like the overriding? Oh yeah, no, or? definitely. Okay. Before they introduce every character, they always say this guy's black, this guy's white. Oh wow. I mean, fair actually, enough. no. Like like, it wasn't really that like explicit but like if there were major characters they would also go like this guy is a european priest this guy's native priest so europeans like white and natives like black okay okay or like a european guy uh but they would also they would always specify if someone's white because that's sort of like important to plot on i feel because i think alan Patton wants to show that there are white people mm-hmm. who are sympathetic to the black people right right so um there was this scene in the beginning or the very beginning where stephen just arrives to johannesburg and they were having i don't want to say march but like they're they're basically protesting and they're boycotting buses because i think they passed a rule to i, I think it's something to do with like segregation of black and white people okay so they were like oh no we're not, ha- we're not having this so the black people where they were walking like five ten kilometers to work and back and, the, and like uh yeah Patton was describing it as like there were black people of all sorts so not just like men but like also women children and elderly and they were all walking like that far away because they do not want to go on the buses Ooh. and then there were like very heartwarming scenes of like white people going like are you going to johannesburg i'll drive you there because it's in a way and mm. as soon as they as soon as they're like they drive into Johannesburg, and those people get off. They go back and drive the other way again. Wow. 
oh, that's that's very yeah endearing. I mean, wait, wait this is based on a true story. Uh, I'm not sure. Oh, so the story itself, I think, is fictional, but like mm-hmm. the themes definitely aren't right. So I know yeah. something like this definitely happened back then, and it's still kind of happening now. So yeah, there's one of, just like segregation is one of the main themes because okay. um, they do also talk about different counties like European and native counties and the former one does seem to give out more of a sense of prosperity and security whereas the latter ones are more I feel they're more like lower class you know they portrayed as such I see like shanty towns and all that you know I think those things still kind of exist like there is a very affluent part of South Africa and yeah even within like I think I was looking at this video of Cape Town and you have the shanty part, uh, shanty town parts of it, and I think those things still really exist. Yeah, uh, that shows like how good my South African knowledge is. <laughs> oh, it's terrible, but I mean it's interesting as well. Like you mentioned that the sort of trial is is not the main plot. Is it? Am I understanding that it's correctly? Not, yeah, it's not the main point of the plot. I'd okay. say because it's one of like it. Like, don't get me wrong. The entire book is about him trying to get his son rescued. Mm-hmm. But it's about the journey, right? You know, it's as the old saying says, it's about the journey, not the destination. Right. It's about the people he meets along the way. Okay. Rather than whether his son gets rescued or not. So would you say the book is more theme-driven, character-driven? It's a very, very theme-driven, character-driven. It's not plot-driven at all. Okay. So, like, at times I would even forget about the son because I was so enamored with what's happening in this particular scene with those people it's like, oh that's quite interesting you know but yeah you know segregation is a very big topic in this book um and you do see sort of like like different types of people in there and different types of opinions towards the whole topic so okay i'm kind i'm kind of curious like in this book how I, I suppose because segregation is such a device back then was such a mm-hmm. divisive topic. You know, you have those who said, I'm assuming like uh, segregation is bad because you should be giving equal opportunities to all. Yeah. I'm kind of curious, like what was the other voice like? So the other voice was, um, well, I think very obviously the other voice was like, you need the white people to be in charge to run it because the black people don't know what to do. Mm. That's one thing. And the other thing is um, th- those guys are tribal. So they don't have, I guess, the civilized way of, they don't know the civilized way of living. So like, we need to barricade ourselves up in, the, in our house. And why should we call ourselves equal, basically? It's the mm. other part of the story. I think I was reading this part where they said like, yeah, sure, the black people were doing all the sort of like heavy work, but like the white people had to like do all the management stuff. And kind of reminds me of that Ben Shapiro video where he was talking about communism. You know what I'm talking about? It, it reminds me of Animal Farm, where all the farm, all the farm animals did the work, and then the pigs would be like, oh, you know, it's such a hard job managing. <laughs> well, I don't know, but sometimes I do feel like it is a hard job managing, but it doesn't mean like black people can't do it. Yeah, exactly. Like, that's, that's my point, right? Yeah. Mm, but I guess back then, especially this was 1948, yeah. like, there was no distinction. People did not know as much about equality as we do now. Exactly. But... Does the book handle segregation in a in a way that made you feel oh that's 
different. That was unexpectedly like I didn't see that part point before. Was there anything that shocked you about it? Uh, I don't think anything particularly shocked me, but like it was more like I didn't know because I knew what it was like in America, but I didn't know what it was like in South Africa. So like, because I thought they didn't even have a voice, but like apparently they had like platforms to to talk. It's just like it was a very suppressive platform, you know. Okay. Because like uh, so John Kamalo is Stephen's brother mm. who moved to. Um, Johannesburg also and became like a politician slash civil rights activist and the book was saying like he had the voice of a lion and he would be able to stir up emotions in the crowd but he would always reach the point where it becomes like where where it's about to erupt right Mm -hmm. and then he would just die down because he knows that he's not meant to cross a certain line with the government right it's, it's, it's like it's like this kind of stuff that that makes me go oh okay right yeah right. interesting interesting so yeah that's one of the themes of the uh, of the book and I think I think another one that is quite apparent as well is the idea of I want to say like a city life corruption you know I don't mm. want okay maybe not corruption but like the temptations of a city right because you have those people who were from the re- remote village right you have all those people and then they move over to uh, Johannesburg and suddenly they all become those uh, power-driven or like um, drug-fueled or like just murderers, you know, the oh, type okay. of people. So I feel like I'm not sure if uh, this is just a plot device or Adam Patton is trying to talk about how everyone's trying to move to Johannesburg and you know they don't really know whether they actually want to move there they know whether what to do when they move there they just know that everyone's moving there mm. and so they're moving there themselves because because uh, i don't know whether like he hates the city or whether like he's just making a point here hmm i mean there is a if i understand you correctly there is a sense of they call it bright light syndrome yeah. where you think if you're, if you're from a rural village you're thinking oh that city that's where all the rich people are made that's where i can make a living for myself that's where i can carve my own identity like i'm going to move to a city the allure is quite tempting if that makes sense like knowing that there's just opportunity that i think is what draws people there but mm-hmm. besides that there's not much you don't really know why you're going like some people i know would say like i i feel it myself sometimes like if everyone in my group says, oh, I want to work in, in Moscow, I want to work in Moscow, for example, like, even without knowing it, I'd be like, shit, I want to work in Moscow now. Like, and when I go there, I realize, oh no, Putin's trying to kill me. <laughs> for example, like, is that, am, I, am I reading you correctly? Is that what you're trying to say? Yeah, kind of. No, you're right, you're right. Apart from the Putin's trying to kill me. <laughs> But here it's like, um, you know, you're there, you're in a city, you don't know what to do. So, like, you naturally turn to physical pleasures to numb yourself of, like, the uncertainty, right? Yeah, I suppose. So, I think this is kind of what's happening here. Because, like, um, you have his sister who uh, moved over to Johannesburg. She she became a prostitute and she was selling, like, illegal liquor, I think. Oh, wow. Yeah. Ooh. Oh wow! That's, that's just nice. one example. So like the, the the kid, as we talked about, the, the son, he, you know, he has a kind heart. You can you can even tell after the murder when they talk to him that, you know, he didn't mean what he did, and he really wanted to repent. And like, if he was given another chance, he would definitely have like turned his life around. But you know, just but he was still a murderer. Yeah. Like, he he still had bad friends, had bad influences. 
like he right. t- still turns to his crime right so there's a lot of this kind of idea of being uncertain in a big city and just being led astray you know <laughs> oh yeah i'm trying to think though because i guess my life it's been fairly suburban fairly city so and i've, I've tried country life as well like I guess we live in slightly different times as well. And also very, mm-hmm. I, I say myself very privileged in that I don't have to worry about money and everything too much compared to most people. But I feel like nowadays, there's always a way back. So if, you, if the city life doesn't really work out, there is a way back. And there is something you can do at home. I don't, I don't know, maybe back then it was like you put everything in going to this city and you don't have a fallback plan if this doesn't work out. I guess so. And so I'm trying to think like... But here's the thing, your home's also a city. Mm, exactly. But like, I think what we don't understand is like those people, their home's not a city, their home's this village. And actually like um, this village is described by the author as one where it's dying young men and women leave this and you know if you go here everyone's above the age of 50 and they're just like waiting for the deaths there's no crops to be grown there there's been like a year-long drought there everyone just wants to leave there i mean there's even a sense of it today you know like apparently all the growth is happening in the massive cities and one of the best things you can do as a young person is to go to the city make your millions whatever and then come back so I guess this has been going on for a long time, but the point I'm trying to make is these villages, they do sort of replenish after a while. But it's interesting that you say that people kind of, it seems like people move to the city and don't ever go back. Is that, is that what the feeling you got? Um, not that they don't ever go back. It's more like they move to the city and then they just don't know whether they want to go back or not. Right. So I guess there's a bit of tying the city to temptation and like tying the the home to to your home you know it's like saying if you're going home then it's like that that proverb in uh that story in the bible you know the son who went away with his father's riches he spent all of it and he went home it's like this okay okay but i guess i mean these people these characters you're describing they end up in very extreme situations very you know turning to a prostitute is not in my opinion, not many people's first choice when they go into the big city. And I'm just curious, is it because they went there with big intentions and they failed? Or is it because the city was not kind on them? Like, what was it? The city was not kind on them. Okay. I think. Or I think it was kind of both, but I don't feel like they had big intentions to start with. But it was mostly that the city was not kind on them. Because, like, once you get into the city, you realise that... You know, there are going to be those people who are very skilled in the tricks of the trade and they will use that against you. Mm. And you need, you basically, you need to look after your own ass. It's not like home where everyone looks after each other. Like here is for each their own. Okay. So this is like the, I think the brutal bit that maybe those townsfolk, they, they're not very familiar it's with. Not very savvy. Yeah. So. It's because of the sort of anonymity, isn't it? Where in a town, in a village, you know everyone. In a hmm. city, you don't know everyone. So you don't care about the guy you don't know. Yeah. Like I can flip a finger to the guy in the street later. So what? I'm not going to see him for the rest of my life. Right? Mm, exactly. It's like this. And um, so I guess like, if we want to go for another theme there, it's, um, it's related to the trial 
that we were talking so much about. So uh, the trial, again, just to, I guess, remind you, is um, about his son who was accused of murder. Now, his son didn't actually just go to um, the white guy's house by himself, right? Mm. He went with two other people. And those two other people, one of them was John Kamado's son. So, like, his cousin, basically. So all the soft evidence were suggesting that all of this was his cousin's plan. Right. And he was just unfortunate enough to be the one holding the gun. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, so there was an entire sort of idea of this. But, you know, there was no hard evidence on that. Okay, so he there was no hard evidence of him holding yeah. the gun. So there was, like, uh, me saying... Um, the son was a was like a kind-hearted person and he wouldn't lie like you can tell that from the story okay. but you can't use that yeah. in court right mm-hmm. so it was like that so you can tell that it was the other guy but the other guy was using i guess the legal system to his own advantage and because there was no evidence to do it why would i uh, what would i what why would i admit to this crime you know and this ties into the brother, so John Kamalo himself, because even though he's seen as this, you know, uh, civil rights activist, you know, he fights for like all black people when it comes to his own, when it comes to his own fortune, you know, he's still a guy who will put himself above other people. Mm. Okay, so it sounds like the civil rights activist, it might be venturing to spoil the territory, but... I guess he started, he had this idea to begin with, he instigated everything, he brought this... No, no, so not the civil rights guy, but like his son. Oh. So the civil rights guy, the only the only connection he has is he's the dad of him, oh, of, okay. of the other guy. But like he's, I think he's adjusted to his son to not admit to the crime because he knew that there would not be enough evidence to prosecute him anyway, even though he knew that he, I think he knew that he was involved in some way. Okay. I guess these cases, like, these make sort of good stories, especially for books, because you get to see, like, the rationale behind it. Like, you really empathize with the character. Uh, but I guess in this one, what did they, they pleaded for? What, um, so what, what I think the... they wanted to plead manslaughter for the kid. If I'm remembering this correctly, um, they wanted to plead manslaughter for the kid. So basically it means that he wouldn't face the death penalty because it wasn't intentional. And also they wanted to show that he wasn't the prime the prime instigator of the entire plot. Right. Mm-hmm. So they basically just wanted to shift some blame away from him to yeah. like the right people. Yeah. But the right people didn't do the right thing, I guess. You can say, okay. So basically they got off in the end. And it was, this is actually part of big plot because this is actually one of the parts that led to the son's um, execution, spoiler alert. And another part is the fact that, you know, everything was actually looking good for the son. Right. Until the day before the judge was meant to decide on this guiltiness, another murder happened in the exact same fashion. Oh, wow. Okay. So the judge will have to, will have pressure on him to like, make good example of this case yeah to prevent future cases oh okay i see i i see where this is heading yeah i see where this is heading so like um in the end this is actually one of the themes i want to discuss is that um the judge realizes that like his hands are tied here he has to say this guy's guilty like he has to put more blame onto him 
and he's completely within his like the law to do so. He, he it's not like he's putting extra guilt on a guy. Like he still killed someone. It's yeah. just the, the intention behind the killing, you know, was not. It wasn't like pre. Yeah. It wasn't like he was going yeah. to. But now the judge has to kind of put a more harsher sentence on him, and the only way to do that was to put on harsher guilt on him. Exactly. Yeah. Okay, I see what you mean. And so Ooh. the judge, um, the judge realizes this, and um, within like in the in the sentence, he he goes like, I can see this guy. He's got a noble heart. He's honest, and he could have not admitted to the crime because the other two didn't as well. But he did because he he because he knew that that's the right thing to do. But then at the end of the day, I'm still administering the law, and the law tells me that when this happens, I have to do this, and. While I may not personally agree with it, I'm not the one to denounce it. Oh wow! So yeah, there's a very good quote here. So it goes like, "But a judge may not trifle with the law because the society is defective. If the law is the law of the society, that some feel to be unjust, it is the law and the society that must be changed. In the meantime, there is an existing law that must be administered, and that is a sacred duty of a judge to administer it." No, that sounds about right. Yeah. Even like in most systems, you have the the legislative only sort of reviews and passes sentences based on the current structure. They don't produce new laws. Like they could disagree with it, but in the end of the day, they still have to do it. And that to me just it's almost like an executioner role, you know. I mean, that is what it's judge it's judge jury executioner yeah, almost, right? True. And. I, I guess in this case, it doesn't sound like the judge is a, is a bad, mean guy. It sounds like he's trying to be his fairest, and given everything that's happened, he has to take it all into consideration. Mm-hmm. So I don't, I, I don't know, maybe the judge was a terrible person in the whole plot, I don't know. But it, from what I'm hearing, it sounds like he is trying his best to be fair. And, I mean, cases like this happen all the time, like... Uh, there's always you always yeah. think that your case is confined to just you, especially cases on the margin like this, right? But there are there are bigger forces at play that like you just won't even think about. For example, I read somewhere that like uh, sentences made before lunchtime tend to be less harsh or something like that oh. because oh, no. they just want to go to lunch and they're just like, all right, huh, less harsh sentence or or more harsh, one or the other. Okay. And it's quite funny or something along those lines. I, I forgot how they reasoned it, but it's literally things outside. It's still an element of luck, right? It's always an element of luck. I think, from what you describe, if that murder the day before the trial didn't happen, it would have been fine. Yeah, he would have lived. Exactly. Oh my. Which is why this story is so heartbreaking when you read it. It's because as soon as you read about the murder, you know what's going to happen, and you have to read through the entire like, the entire judge's sentence on him, and you just like, ugh. There's like this shouldn't happen, but I can see like why this is happening, and there's like I don't know. There's like the worst feeling. Like even though I know it's fictional, but right. it's just one of those things where you just just you go. Oof. Oof. I got a question for you. Like, do you think that we as people like to absolve ourselves of guilt by referring to the law? And if so, do you think we're justified in doing so? So, for example, like, oh, uh, you did this thing. It's not good, and I'm not a shit person, but by law, I have to do this to you, so I'm going to ruin your life now. Um, yeah, I mean, there are people who do this, but I think most people refer to the law because they just want to protect themselves, not like they want to 
other people up. Like I don't care what you do in、mm. your own time, just as long as it doesn't affect me, then it's fine. Like for example, why are like so many people fine with like weed and prostitution and all that stuff, even though they are technically legal, because、mm. it doesn't affect them. Yeah. Right.、Mm. So it's the same thing here. It's not like I think I refer to law more when I want to protect myself than when I want to ruin other people. Okay. Although I do, I do know that there are people who do exactly the opposite. Use, the, use law. the law against other people, which is you know fine. Use law as a weapon, but you know the law is like a gun. You know you can use it to defend yourself or use it offensively. Because guns don't kill people. No. People kill people. <laughs> oh man. Oof. Ooh, oh, Second Amendment. Uh, what? Best Amendment. Best. <laughs> Only amendment we ever needed. <laughs> exactly. Overrode the others. Hey, I mean, even even Marx himself said, you know, you shouldn't take rights away. You shouldn't take the right to bear firearms away from the people. Interesting. I didn't know that. He did. He did. I think. Otherwise, the memes I saw were wrong. And the memes are the most accurate.、Sources. Exactly. Fair enough. I mean, I I also know that we're running close to the end of the session here. So,、uh, did you have more to say about the idea? And if not, would you recommend this book? What, what's your take on that? Um, so this book is quite short. Well, relatively short. It's like three hundred pages, and it's split up into like three different quote unquote books.、Mm. So the only criticism I would give to it is the way it's written. It's kind of like it's a very old way of. Writing and、oh. they didn't have quotation marks. Oh, so when people spoke, you have to guess if it's them speaking. Because like the only cue is like a dash line, and a dash line can mean a lot of things、yeah. in modern writing. So you don't know whether it's someone speaking or like it's just a point,、right. and you have to guess, and you don't know who is speaking, and that's actually like the main concern of that is when there's just a dash.、Mm. You need to like you need to. Basically, figure out who is talking when. Okay. But other than that, it's a good book because it it does describe those themes pretty well, and it gives you some South African knowledge that you know when when you meet the South African person, you can go like I've read this book. They can go like、hey, I'm not from South Africa. <laughs> <laughs> would you, uh was there any is there any particular audience that you would say like you should you should read this if you are X Y Z demographic. Um, to be honest, I don't think a demographic、um, recommendation、okay. makes sense. It's more like if you care about stuff like civil rights, or if you want to learn more about South African history, or at least like、um, the general idea or the general consensus, societal consensus around that time. Then this is like a good book to read or reference to. But I won't just recommend a book to a certain race of people because、um, mm. you know. Now be against the theme of the yeah, yeah. the point、uh, of the book, right? I, I guess when I said demographics, <laughs> I meant more like audience, like yeah, yeah. type. Yeah. So exactly, if you if you do want to learn more about those things, then do go ahead and read it, but make sure you know who is talking. Okay, fair enough. Fair enough.、Um, anything else to add? No, no, that's all. Awesome. All right, guys. That's all we have for today. Thank you for listening in. If you like what we do, follow us on Spotify. Just type in "Paper Cut Podcast" in your search bar, or in any of your other preferred streaming sites. If you want to leave us a comment or let us know what you think, you can email us at papercut.cast 
at gmail.com. Or Instagram at papercutpodcast, no caps. Or Twitter at papercutpodcast, one word, no caps. Look forward to seeing you guys next week for another episode. Until then, I'm Nick. And I'm Eugene. Peace out.